Welcome to the latest FT Advisor in Focus podcast with me, Simone Kuriaku, Senior Editor for FT Advisor. Those of us who have worked in financial services for some time will agree that it is vital to get on the savings ladder early on in life to secure a comfortable retirement in the future. But how many young people are aware of the need to save now to meet future needs? Do they even have the opportunity post-pandemic to put more money aside each month? And what can we as an industry do to help encourage these conversations as part of intergenerational wealth advice? Joining me to talk through these issues and more are Robert Cochran, Senior Corporate Pension Specialist for Scottish Widows, and Steve Webb, partner at LCP. But before we get into the discussion, Saksha Menezes will provide a report into the issues facing young people's pension savings. Over to you, Saksha. Thanks, Simony. The question many people are asking is, why is it important to start pensions early? According to studies by the Financial Conduct Authority, Young adults aged 18 to 34 and the self-employed saw the largest proportional increases in financial vulnerability during the pandemic, rising by more than 40%. Since young people are now more likely to be much less comfortable retiring than their parents, it is important to start preparing for retirement sooner rather than later. Advice firm Purely Pensions has warned that savers in their 20s could lose more than £21,000 at retirement if they put off making contributions to their pensions for the first five years of working. Matthew Amesbury, head of pensions advice at the firm, says the pandemic has delayed young people starting to save for retirement since more young people are seeking ways of maximising take-home pay. He said this meant many stopped pensions contributions, which means they massively miss out on the benefits of compounding interest and long-term growth. A survey by workplace savings provider Cushion found concerns about saving for retirement reduced by 20% in May compared with last year, while 75% agreed that the coronavirus made them realise that having accessible savings was equally important to pensions. 41% of those surveyed would like to see their employers implement a pension redirect arrangement, which would mean money is redirected into a separate pot to cover immediate and medium-term financial priorities. In terms of a generational divide, a New York Live survey in July surveyed 2,200 adults across three generations of working-age people. It found that millennials feel the most confident of all three generations about their retirement prospects. For instance, 68% of millennials are confident they'll retire when they planned versus 62% of Generation X. In fact, in 2019, according to a study by Insider and Morning Consult, only 50% of this generation had a retirement account and only 36% were actively saving according to a study by Insider and Morning Consult. Looking to the future of pensions, the recent shift in Europe, North America and parts of Asia to move from defined benefit to defined contribution plans puts the burden of creating and executing the pension strategy on the individual. This includes weathering market shocks and making sure their pension pot lasts as long as they do. The shift from the paternalism of company pensions that provide fixed benefits to the financial individualism and insecurity of defined contribution schemes comes at a cost to the young. Since the data shows that the majority of young people are not good at managing the risk of retirement savings on their own and can often underestimate the financial risk of growing old and how inflation can erode savings, 
This can lead people to not saving enough and making poor income choices at retirement. However, other ways that countries have tried to mitigate these problems, such as implementing state pension ages and increasing pension information to young people, isn't tackling the biggest retirement risk, which is longevity. One option could be collective retirement schemes, which pull individuals' pension pots, so that investment and longevity risk is shouldered by the group. This has been trialled in the Netherlands and Canada, which recognise the potential for collective investments to produce better outcomes than individual plans. However, this is not without problems. How are schemes to ensure poor investment returns are shared fairly between young and older members? Another prediction for the future of pensions is that there will be greater pressure on schemes to make responsible investments. According to recent surveys by ShareAction, 84% of pension scheme members say they would prefer a pension that uses investments to encourage companies to be more responsible. Some 68% of 25 to 34-year-olds say it's important that people use their money for the good of society and the wider world. Some of the UK's largest pension providers have committed by 2050 to be net zero or neutral on carbon emissions from their main pension portfolios. But this is a pace seen as too slow by many climate campaigners. However, it is a start and something that will need to be factored into the savings conversations we need to have now to help encourage younger people to start saving. Back to you, Simone. Excellent. Thank you very much, Saksha. That's a lot of stuff for us to to consider. Um, but on that last point about uh, the importance of having these uh, these conversations, um, Robert, can we start with you? How do we start opening up these sort of pension conversations with young people? Good question. And lo- loads of really useful information in there. But for me, I always start off with everybody with the same three questions. What have I got? Is it enough? And what can I do next? And in terms of what have I got, as soon as people know that they have something, because that's that's part of the issue here, isn't it? That people are auto-enrolled into schemes and they don't know what it is that they've actually got. So it's that whole piece about what have I got. And the way that we can really uh, affect young people here is by making sure that their pension information is displayed in places where they already go and making it more accessible to them. And we're already seeing that happening, aren't we? So young people are much more likely to use apps. Uh, They're much more likely to use banking apps. They probably picked their bank based on how good the app was rather than other elements of the experience. And it's important that that we start to make, uh, take advantage of of the ability to connect finances together so that people start to see their pension as one of their assets that belongs to them. So making it easy for people to know what they've got is the first element for younger people, I would suggest. Interesting. Steve, I see you nodding in agreement there. What um, what would you like to, to see happening to get these conversations started? Well, I thought what was really interesting in Saksha's presentation there was the emphasis not just on pensions, but on short-term savings as well. Um, Because I think there is a danger that we in the pensions world obsess on pensions and think pensions is the only good thing and every spare pound needs to go into a pension. And that simply isn't correct. Uh, I'd identify a hierarchy of three things for younger people. I mean, if you talk to a younger person and say, I'm here to talk to you about pensions, you've lost them already. So I think the pensions bit is largely covered initially by automatic enrolment. You know, you can debate it should start at 18, not 21 and all the 22 and all the rest of it. But, you know, if people simply don't opt out and 20-somethings are the least likely group to opt out, interestingly, and inertia is curiously effective for 20-somethings, that's a great start. Then you need a short-term savings buffer. 
because without that, then, you know, the financial crisis, the car repair, whatever it is, and suddenly you're in the world of high cost credit and, and, and you just don't want to be in that place. And obviously, as you're aware, some of these, some pension providers are trying to splice these two together. So Nest with the sidecar savings idea and others. So, and I think that's a good thing. So that, that we get into the idea that a bit of short-term saving is a good thing. The long-term saving through making the most of your employer contribution, you know, it's free money, don't turn it down, is good. And then I think we have to bring housing in. It would, you know, naive not to think that young people, many of them aren't thinking about housing. And of course, although it's tempting to pit property against pensions, actually, if you can get started on buying a house, not hand the money over to a landlord who's going to charge you potentially more in rent than you pay in mortgage, but crucially, that you have a chance of getting to retirement with your mortgage paid off, because anybody who's saving enough for retirement that they've got to find a rent out of needs far more money. So in a way, I don't think these things are all inconsistent with each other. So my three-way hierarchy is let inertia do its stuff on auto-enrollment, just don't opt out. Have a small savings buffer, and we need to be more creative about making that happen. And then think about property, not as a, a you know an investment thing, but actually a way of avoiding costs in retirement and possibly avoiding wasting money now. Absolutely. You're very right there. Everything seems to... Uh tie into everything else you know if a young person's thinking about saving they're not just thinking about saving for a retirement they're thinking about saving very short term perhaps for that holiday or, or for that car uh, and then perhaps a bit more long term about ways to pay for a mortgage so I think you're, you're right we need to start thinking about the way we talk about products and the way we talk about the savings journey and I think what one of the sort of questions that we were thinking about is our our current products fit for the demands of the newest generation of savers I mean obviously we've got a lot of, lot of choice out there is it too much choice is it good choice um, Steve can I stick with you and then go to Robert on that yes I mean I there's a product that ought to be great and I think is horrible which is the lifetime ISA so until the lifetime ISA came along we had pensions, workplace pensions, auto-enrollment and so on, and your money's locked up till 55, 57, whatever the age ends up being. And then you had help to buy ISAs, which was specifically for the deposit and kind of that was it. And then you moved on. And probably with the best of intentions, the government created this kind of hybrid product, the lifetime ISA and the ISA bit, and you'd get your top up and you put it towards a deposit. But then the lifetime bit is it's also a pension, but it has these really strange properties. You can't open one after 40. You can't pay into it after 50. You can't touch it till you're 60. And immediately we've created complexity and that, well, why would I save in a lifetime ISA, not a pension? What are the pros? What are the cons? Well, my employer will pay into my workplace pension, but not my LISA. And, and suddenly it's just horribly complicated. So I would rather kind of have, for example, the thing you're auto enrolled into, the workplace pension, with a bolt on of a savings product or something like that, so that you're not shopping for separate products with different providers, with different access rules. It is one thing, perhaps with a couple of pots. And, and I think, you know, if behavioral economics has taught us every, anything, it's about removing friction, making it easy for people. So I think a bolt on into the thing that pretty much everybody who's, who's in work is in, which is the workplace pension, would be, a you know, and I've always favoured some flexibility on access to workplace pensions. You know, a quarter will be taken tax free. Almost everybody does that. So that won't be retirement income, to be honest. So I think we should be much more relaxed about letting people access a quarter of their pension pot for a deposit or something, you know, a bit more flex within one product rather than have different products, different rules, different explanations. Interesting. So uh, keeping it simple and a bit more flexibility. Robert, those sound like uh, 
beautiful things. But I also remember hearing those sort of things in 1999 when we talked about keeping things simple and uh, having flexibility. What's what's happened? Why have we still got so many complex products? Uh, so, well, first of all, I, I've actually got a little diagram here, which is exactly what Steve's just described. So I completely, completely agree that uh, that that you know we've gone from a position of having silos to trying to trying to narrow the, uh, try, try to remove the silos and becoming flat lifetime savings vehicles for people. Um, uh, so, so I guess if I take a take a take a rewind to your question there about about the the flexibility, if you think about at retirement, we do have a lot of flexibility now. We have loads of flexibility about what people can do. We think about the savings bit. The savings bit's not too badly done. It's the bits in the middle. So, like, you want money for a house, you want money for this, that, and the next thing, that that are that are where the challenges sit. Um, but where, where I think um, we really need to think differently is that whole retirement space. Um, so we've got the word retirement. What does retirement conjure up in your mind? Um, probably conjures up. Um, well, for me, it's my parents. For younger people, it's probably their grandparents and the kind of life that they're living. And the life that they're living is probably going to be different from the life that you'll be living when you're when you're older. If you're a young person right now, for for example, you'll probably live longer. You probably won't work for one employer for thirty eight years like my dad did. You know, you won't retire and defined benefit scheme with a guaranteed income for life. So you needed that flexibility, and the flexibilities come in. But the language hasn't changed and the way we talk about it hasn't changed at the same rate. So I think you do actually have quite a lot of flexibility, but you, you pro we probably haven't moved enough to accommodate the way that people live their, their lives. So many young people will have portfolio careers. Um, they'll be they'll be slashers. Uh, they'll have slasher careers, which sounds terrible. But if you look on their LinkedIn profile, what it will probably say is I... I do this slash this slash this slash this. I have a whole host of different roles that I've fulfilled to provide my income. So I'm getting lots of different ways that I'm earning income. And when it comes to retiring, there won't be a date that you retire at. There won't be a, um, there won't be just one source of income. There won't be one um, what, there won't be one pension likely that you take it from. So we need to really think about the flexibility and how we talk about that that later life journey. And, and, and some people just won't retire at all. Um, so I, I'm really intrigued as to how we start to have a conversation around later life. Um, I, I, what's really interesting is that lots of people who are in their 50s still don't know what they're going to do. You know, I'm in my 50s now, and I, I can't, I still can't imagine when, I, when I'll stop working or what that phasing out of work will look like. I can't imagine, and I, I don't really want to go from one day working to the next day never doing anything so we need to we need to start to help people and guide them to to towards these kind of solutions i think yeah absolutely and that's again part of that conversation i must say say robert uh, i'm very pleased that you gave the definition of a, a slack career because i was worried that you were advocating young people get into something maybe illegal um because live at the, the, the expense of the state for the rest of their lives and yeah. have to worry about the pension thing but thank you for clarifying that um that it just referred to a punctuation uh, mark rather than anything else um if we if we go back to to a couple of things that, that you were saying you know um will people want to or be able to retire completely i mean you've made the point that um at 50 now you're not quite sure what exactly your retirement's going to look like and whether you want to phase it out slowly or 
um, do something different. Um, do you think that young people um, will have this kind of mentality? Do you think that perhaps they will just all be sort of entrepreneurs? Will we all be entrepreneurs in the future? And, and then how do you sort of go about getting that pensions conversation with them? Because then we're looking at perhaps personal pension contributions rather than workplace. I'll stick with you, Robert, for that and then go to Steve. Uh, so yeah, I think that I think there's a much bigger challenge there about the savings piece, um, and I think the auto enrolment rules probably need to change to find a way of incorporating self-employed earnings within it. And once it, once we can manage that, then we'll put them on a, on a closer keel to auto enrolled uh, uh, through the, through the workplace. So I think that, that needs to happen just to reflect the fact that people have multiple earnings as well, and currently they're you know the the, the Currently, they might not be getting uh, auto-enrolled even if they're employed and they've got four different employments. You know? um, so, so that piece needs to be fixed. I think accountants have a role to play in as well. You know, if you're, a, if you're an account software, packages have a role to play in as well. Um, and I think, um, I think visibility of all your assets in one place has a role to play in that as well. So, you know, Steve was talking about the lifetime ISA and um, so we've got lifetime ISA, we've got, we've got pension, we've got bank accounts, we've got other savings vehicles, those short-term savings vehicles we might be looking at. So I think the ability to see all that stuff in one place will help people think about it a bit more um, and then once they do that, it makes it easier to plan because currently it's very difficult to plan if you have stuff all over the place and you don't know what it is that you've got. Um, so we need to find ways of making that easier. And, and, and hopefully we'll have an opportunity to come on to. We've got some ideas and visions of what that might look like, but we're pretty far away from it now. Yeah, I mean, I was looking forward to the dashboard coming in in 2019 because I'm still, I'm still young enough to have some hope that people will do what they say they're going to do. And now we're looking at 2023. I hope it comes in before I actually retire in 20 years' time or so. But, um, but definitely that dashboard and that visibility in one place would, would go a, a long way um steve can, can i come um come to you then you know are, are we looking at uh young people wanting to or be a being able to retire um completely and, and and again that leads i think also into affordability you know can they retire completely yeah i mean i think i think the issue about how do you get pension money coming in when we don't have nine to five jobs with regular employers is a key one. The self-employed, it feels to me what you might call the, the proper self-employed, the traditional self-employed who file a tax return and so on ought to be easy. We still haven't done that yet. So two million self-employed file a tax return every year. It would be trivial to nudge them into a pension. You know, you work out their tax, you add X percent for the pension and they can opt out if they don't want it. You know, it's not difficult, but the government's just terrified. They they tried to put national insurance for the self-employed up by one percent and had a backbench rebellion and had to, you know, walk away. So it's it's difficult stuff, but we we need to do that. Matthew Taylor of the RSA did a big government review on employment and the changing world of employment, and he had some quite interesting ideas that maybe just every contract payment to someone who does some work, you take an X percent and stick it in a pension for them. You know, radical stuff. I think his report's gathering dust on a shelf somewhere. But, you know, this is the world we're moving into. Um, and I think it, the only slight risk, I think, in all of this is we can be very middle class about it. That later life self-employment, you know, into your 60s, a bit of consultancy, you know, a day on a board, you know, is lovely for, for the well-connected and, the you know, the rich. But actually, it's a very different world we're talking about. I think for for most people, that that self-employment is often uh, not a not a particularly pleasant choice. It's you know maybe a zero-hours contract or something. Maybe the only thing that's available. So I think we do need to think far more about 
people who aren't, I mean, bluntly like us, because so many policymakers live in a world where, you know, when they retire, they'll be on a board somewhere. And actually, it's just very insecure what we're talking about now and much less predictable. So as Robert said, you know, his dad, I think he said, you know, retired at pension age or whatever it is. But certainly my dad did. My mom retired at pension age. They got small final salary pensions. They knew they knew what they're – I often say to people, my mom knew that her pension age would be 60, and it was. My daughter won't know until she is 60 what her pension age will be, and it will be 70-ish. In other words, we'll have 10 years notice, but by the time my 20-something daughter is 60. So, you know, going into a world where you don't even know what your pension age is going to be, state pension age is moving, you don't have a DB pension, you've got a pot or, or multiple pots, you can choose combinations of, of jobs, of hours, of income. And, and I think guidance and advice, I mean, you know, this is FT advisor for goodness sake, is going to be incredibly important to make best choices because there are, as Saksha said earlier, there are so many behavioral biases here, you know, yeah. to, to want your money now, to take income early, all that kind of stuff. So, so if we're going to give people lots more freedom and choice, which we should, we've got to support them in making good choices. Yeah, I absolutely, uh, absolutely 100% agree with that. And that's why, um, that's why I think in, in some cases, the lifetime ISA would work very well for someone who's perhaps in their 40s and might not be retiring until they're in their 70s even, because then you know at least if you don't touch that lifetime ISA at 60, you will get a payout. Um, so you get some cash there. So perhaps you don't need to take your 25% um, cash lump sum out of your um, workplace pension. So it, it all it's all part and parcel of this um, of how you use different products and put them together. And I couldn't help thinking, um, going back to, again, what you said about the, the, the uh, working late into your later years. Do you remember uh, years ago, that Albert chap who was 90 and then went back to work for B&Q? Mm. Yeah. It's always B&Q. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you do see this. A lot of people later on in life do go back into the workplace, either because they're bored um, yeah. because they just need to supplement their income. And yeah, I, yeah. I mean, don't realize you know they don't realize the younger you save and the more you can put aside as a younger person the less likely you are going to have to rely on being in the workplace um later on in your life i mean realistically do any of us really want to be working at 90 <laughs> but i think the interesting thing you mentioned about albert going back is is there is a phenomenon called unretiring and I think the evidence is about one in four. I think it's men, interestingly. It might be everybody, but I think it is men. One in four men stop work and just can't cope. And a bit as Robert was Robert was saying earlier, you know, it's so much part of our identity. So I think finding ways, I mean, you know, we do know, however, that the early retired are a massive power force of the nation and of social enterprises and of volunteering and all the rest of it. So, you know, you often hear retired people saying, I don't know how I used to fit a job in because I'm so busy. So it's it's not that you don't do anything at all, but we need to find ways of harnessing the skills of folk. And demographically, we're going to have very few younger workers available. You know, the population is aging. So actually, we need economically as a nation to harness the skills of older workers, their experience, and so on, use them to bring on the next generation. So I think actually employers have got a huge role to play here. You know, if they get it, they will be the winners because they'll retain and recruit older workers who will stay with them because older workers don't move around in the way that younger workers do. So it's worth retaining, recruiting older workers. It's worth training them because there's a bit of a, oh, you're too old to be bothered with training. But actually, that's, that's no longer true if ever it was. So rethinking the workplace, rethink, you know, it's just a huge agenda, really. And one of the problems is it's no single government department. 
you know, yeah. the pensions people do the pensions bit and the employment people do the employment bit and, the, you know, and, and the danger is nobody really sees the big picture. Yeah, well, you're, you're making um, being sort of 60 plus sound very exciting, Steve. I almost can't wait to get there. <laughs> Um, but fortunately, I had a mother who made me start saving into a pension at 18. But uh, not not everyone has has uh, terrifying mothers like mine who, who makes them save at, at an early age. So Robert, I know uh, Thatcher mentioned that um, the, the power of compounding is something that we cannot ignore. How do we get these sort of messages across to young people early on in life? Well, I'd like to say that uh, your 20s is your golden age of pension savings which sounds a bit odd because golden age makes it sound like something that's much later in life, but really it is the golden age for pension savings. Um, and at its simplest, you know, we can make this stuff really simple. So one of the ways that we do it at Scotch Widows is we have something called a Your Future Self Calculator. So you can pop in uh, how much you're paying into your pension and what you've currently got and what you'd like to have in retirement. And it will instantly, your phone will age you to the age at which you'll be able to retire on that income level. So you'll immediately be aged to that age. And you, if you look at it and you're not paying very much in, you go, that's hideous. Uh, how can I change that? And a slider will pop up and it will show you that either you change your expectations or you change your contribution levels. And if you increase your contribution levels ever so slightly, you'll actually watch the wrinkles in real time fall off your face. So it's about taking complicated quotations and illustrations and turning them into images that fit the way that young people interact right now. So it feels like a Snapchat thing. It feels like, um, you know, it feels like almost like a filter that you're using in in, in apps that you're already uh, familiar with. So, it's, but it's but behind the scenes is actually doing a really complicated pension quotation. So at Scottish Widows, we have a cost of delay calculator, and it's really straightforward. I just put in that I am twenty five. And I want to retire at age 65. Okay, by starting now, you could receive a pension that's 29% higher than if I waited five years, so if I waited till I was 30. Or it would be 69% higher than if I waited until for 10 years until I was 35. That's pretty big numbers difference. And it's a really simple calculator that does that for you. So it just shows the 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 impact of paying in, in your 20s. And, and as you say, it's that compounding effect. We all know that it's a case of how do we get that across. The numbers speak for themselves. But can I just send a note of caution there? Because, of course, I agree with Robert, we need simple tools. But the danger is people will draw the wrong conclusion from that. Because, you know, I see that if I shovel money in in my 20s, then I'll get a big fat pension. But if I shovel money in my pension and don't buy a house, I could be worse off. That could be the wrong thing to do. So I think there is a risk if we just have pension tools to think about pensions. We, you know, you know, clearly, ideally, you want this, you know, on the web page Robert's talking about. I'm sure there's a go and talk to somebody, take some advice, take some guidance and so on. But I just we mustn't be oversimplistic about this because we started this conversation by saying we have to see everything in the round and not just pick pick pensions out. And I think the other dimension that we that, you know, two blokes trying to answer your question, Simony, neglect is the gender dimension of all of this. And there is. Uh, it, you know, it's not the world we wish it should be, but it's the world that it is, which is that women's earnings tend to be front loaded. You know, we may think the future will be different, perhaps. I don't know. But, you know, there is evidence that once someone starts having a family, on average, the impact on the wage of women is greater. The likelihood of them going back part time is greater. The chances of them missing out on promotions is greater. All those things we might wish were different, but are not. So I think there is a particular issue for younger women with disposable income to think, 
you know, it's a really hard thing to think about, but to think actually, I may not be able to catch up in a way that their male counterpart could. And that's a tough message, but it is, you know, it is true that in terms of disposable income for, for women, saving when you can before family may have disrupted your earnings potential might be the only opportunity you get. And that's a tough message, but I think it's a true one. Yeah. And it's certainly one that advisors have to um, look at when they're advising people in the round. So whether their clients are 40, they have to look at, do you have children? Do you have dependents? Do you have um, people who are older than, you, older than you? Are you going to be paying for your parents' long-term care? It all feeds back into this intergenerational wealth conversation and this intergenerational wealth advice that, that people need. Um, I mean, obviously, if we're focusing on the sort of people that are readers at FT Advisor would be advising most of them tend to have been savvy savers anyway but even so what kind of uh, what kind of useful conversation starting points do you think advisors could be having with with clients to kind of help them encourage younger family members perhaps to start being financially independent and financially resilient if I can go to you Steve and then finish with you Robert I think this whole area of intergenerational finances is, is is fascinating and changing because essentially, you know, because we are on average living substantially longer and because property inflation has been so enormous, hundreds and hundreds of billions of pounds are going to cascade through the generations. But unfortunately, what's going to happen is instead of I mean, I say unfortunately, but, you know, from a point of view of the middle generation who are coming up to retirement, rather than the parent dies at 75 and passes on money at 45, the parent now dies at 90 and passes on at 60. Well, by the time I'm 60, it's, you know, half a house is very nice, but I've done most of my planning and so on. And actually, when I really wanted it was when I was 30. So, so the conversation I think we need to have in the extended family, which advisors can facilitate, is how, how do you lever the wealth from the wealthiest older generation, and not everybody has wealthy parents with a big house in the southeast, but you know what I mean, to get that money preferably out earlier. So I wrote an article um, called about what they call giving while living. And giving while living was a sort of Bill Gates philanthropist type thing. But I think the principle applies to ordinary people with a bit of wealth. How do you get that wealth? Because if I roll myself forward to 75 or 80, actually, if it was easy to do, I would like to see my adult children helped while I'm around to see them enjoy it. And frankly, they're not yet existing children. Um, you know, it'd be fantastic rather than after I'm gone them get some of my wealth you know so if we can find financial products processes to get the money moved sooner that would be transformative i think um and the other thing is obviously people forget you can pay into someone else's pension so you talk to rich men who've maxed out on their pensions thinking oh what do i do do i go for venture capital trust and they're sitting married or partnered with a woman who's got a lousy pension it doesn't even occur to them they could pay into her pension i know it's terribly patriarchal but but you know there's somebody else there who could do with it or the kids and when you pay into somebody else's pension they get the tax relief and of course if the, the person you're paying into is a parent on child benefit who's hit by child benefit tax charges the pension contribution comes off their income so it means less child benefit charge you know thinking about this stuff in the round and creatively has got to be the way forward and it, as you say simony intergenerationally has got to be at the heart of this see thank you very much steve robert final thoughts i always have to say i agree with everything that steve said there um, I have a different final thought to leave us on, um, which is looking forward. So we spent a bit of time working with employers and with advisors, thinking about what the future 
ideally would look like um, for, for pensions, so particularly for workplace type pensions. We've kind of got three building blocks that are setting us on the way to somewhere just now. We've got open banking, which is allowing people to connect all of their um, bank accounts together. We've got pension dashboard, which is allowing people to connect all of their pensions together. And then in the middle, we've got something called open finance, which uh, looks to connect all the different financial products together. And probably back to where I started, if people can see what they've got, that starts to to change um, the dynamic. Uh, and what's been really interesting is to get an idea of what people would really like us to be able to do in this space. Taking into account what Steve said about people having, uh, you know, our multiple different uh, financial products across the piece. Uh, and people have said to us, what, what we, what we kind of like is something like Uber, you know, tells me it goes and tell it knows where i am and it, it knows where all the taxis are so it knows where i am and it knows where all the funds are and it says this is where you are right now and then it says to me where do you want to go uh, what where do you want to get to and you choose different destinations that you'd like to get to and that there's a number of kind of golden rules that sit behind financial products that we all agree on are, are, are golden rules of how, how they work. So it's not about individual companies saying this is where we think money should go, what have you. There's kind of an agreed set of principles that sit behind that. So my Uber says, I'm here. I want to get to being able to retire at 67 and afford to go on two holidays a year. How do I get there? What are the different ways I could get there? And it might present me with a number of different routes. And, and it's, it's about visualizing what happens once you've connected all the data together and how you can apply that data to get you where you want to go to. And, and there will always be a role for financial advisors here because people with really complex needs, this stuff won't apply to them. They, they'll, they'll still need all of that help and all that, all that intergenerational tax planning and trust planning, all of that stuff will still exist. But for lots of people with more simple sets of needs, that kind of model works quite well. And we've kind of modeled that, uh, uh, evolved that into a GPS for your finances. So rather than an Uber, it's like a GPS. And each time you get knocked off, it's like it's like a problem in, in the route ahead. It reroutes you back to where you want to get to. Now, there's a, there are loads of steps to go to get there. But the first points is, is those building blocks that we've got of connecting all the finances together. And suddenly we might be able to take that, rather than take little baby steps forwards, we might be able to take some leaps forwards into deliver, delivering something. I might be pretty ambitious here. I'm in my 50s. I want it here before before I'm coming out of work. I said, well, I think it's great to have ambitions like that. And let's face it, we know the technology exists that already helps us to, to get those building blocks in place and we've seen such strides in technology and you know i mean they put a man on the moon in 1960 i mean goodness we're, we're at apex technology um growth right now so um when all the billionaires come down from exploring space in their private rockets maybe they can actually um put some money to good use to developing these kind of uh, uber-like apps or gps's for for our for our pensions but uh, sadly, that is all uh, that we have time for um, today on this podcast. But I'd like to thank Saksha, Steve and Robert for their insightful comments and to thank all of you for listening. For more pensions and investment planning news, go to ftadvisor.com. Until next time, take care. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. 
We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.